think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 109 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 110th episode. I'm Laurent Carbonell. I'm Nathan Renville. And uh, we have today, joining us for the first time during the pandemic, a, a remote guest who will... Uh, we, we're really giving this uh, finally a try. Uh, Laura Tribe of Open Media. Hello. Thanks for coming it's really on. Really good to have you on. Uh, we, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, in this very novel format that we have been too lazy and disorganized to ever try before. I'm happy to uh, finally try it out for you guys and see if we can get remote work going for a podcast too. Um. So. Ottawa watchers and and not even Ottawa watchers. Basically, everyone over the last couple of weeks has suddenly heard a uh, three character uh, name that has struck fear into their hearts, and that is C10, uh, the government's uh, changes to the Broadcasting Act that were tabled last October. I think October. That sounds about right to me. Um, Laura, at Open Media, you work on internet policy of various kinds. Um, and we wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about kind of the context of this bill, uh, what's going on with it, and why everyone seemingly uh, is mad at it. Yeah, I'm happy to chat about it. And I think the past two weeks have probably taken a bill that, although around since the fall, many have not heard of, uh, to new heights. So I think it's probably the right time to be talking about it now. So have you been following it since it was tabled? Um, or did it really just cross your radar more recently? So Open Media has been following the bill since it was tabled uh, and even before it was tabled in the Broadcast Telecom Legis Act's legislative review, the BTLR panel uh, that was put together to advise on how to reform both the Broadcasting and the Telecom Acts. And the original intention was to update both of them. Uh, it seems that broadcast got a bit more steam than some of the telecom acts that we would think are, are uh, important to introduce as well. Uh, open media is historically more focused on the internet policy side of things. So we look at, you know, can people access the internet? Can they afford the internet? And then what happens when they're on the internet? Can they use it, open thing, or access things freely? Um, and are they under surveillance while they're doing it? You know, are they being spied on while they're online? So we kind of call those our buckets of access, privacy, free expression uh, that we're working on for our key pillars. And when we were looking at Bill C-10, you know, in the original context of the BTLR panel looking at how to update the Broadcasting Act, it wasn't a huge piece on our radar because we're so focused on what happens on the internet. And so much of the Broadcasting Act amendments, which are long overdue, uh, are really, you know, when we were first looking at that, how do you modernize the Broadcasting Act to acknowledge and support creators online? Um, I think when we saw the final report from the BTLR review panel, uh, it started to help us realize that broadcasting was going to have to be a bit more on our radar than we'd first anticipated. Uh, and I think when C10 was introduced, it kind of came higher up on our radar again, looking at the way that the bill had been, uh, it, it, I think the biggest concern for us is really that it tries to take the way we look at broadcast and apply that lens to the internet, as opposed to trying to treat broadcasting and that type of one-way distribution of content very differently from something like the internet, which as a medium has multiple layers of multi-directional communications. So anyway, there's a lot to get in there on what's actually in the bill itself. But historically, yes, we've been following it for a while. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I think that point is important. Um, and because that's, of course, my read of the bill as well, is that it's really shoehorning. Uh, like, it, as part of the tech lash, there's been a large government or a large demand on government to regulate the web giants, right? In whatever form that's taken. And the government's approached this, you know, in a number of different ways. This budget spoke to taxation um, of them on a number of different fronts. Um, but this one's a little different because it's not regulate you know, directly in response to a lot of the issues we've seen with web giants as of late. It's not really responsive in that way. It's really in relation, in my understanding at least, is in relation to the complaints of sort of the creative or the cultural class of Canadians, um, which is why it's centered around broadcasting is because broadcasting has traditionally had the carve-outs um, that take money basically from the broadcasters and they're, they're obliged to put aside something like five or seven and a half percent um, to support these cultural industries. So that's really the cha that's really what the government seems to be regulating around here is trying to get the web giants to uh, you know flow funds to the creative class of Canadians and tell the stories, not really the broader regulation around you know one of the innumerable, um, issues people have had with Facebook or Twitter or any of the other web giants in recent years. It's really just a subset of sort of regulate the web giants. I think when you look at the way that Canadian heritage has come out to try and tackle platforms and, and big tech writ large, this is definitely just a piece of the puzzle. Uh, but I think when you see the bigger picture, um, there's kind of a few things that stand out to us. Uh, some of concerns, some good, some bad. Really, the when you're looking at the Broadcasting Act specifically, the approach for, in the beginning was, you know, from the minister himself, how do you get them to pay their fair share? So we're looking at people who are cutting the cord from cable, they're watching things online on things like Netflix, people are cutting their cable subscriptions, which was a primary funding mechanism for Canadian creators, Netflix should pay too. Um, I think as the past few years have kind of uh, culminated a lot of frustration around platforms like Facebook and YouTube, their role in things like misinformation, the elections. Uh, there's a lot of other pieces on the table right now. So in addition to the Broadcasting Act reforms, uh, we've also heard from the department and the minister, they're looking at introducing online harms legislation to talk about how they deal with hateful content and harmful content online. We now have a consultation about what to do with piracy and that kind of content and should ISPs be obligated to do website blocking. We're hearing talk about how do you make the platforms pay news publishers uh, through things like a link tax. And when you look at the big picture, the thing that stands out is that the Canadian Heritage Department and the Minister of Canadian Heritage have really seen big tech as a bank account. And the problem with that is not that these companies should pay. I think there's actually a lot of ways we can quite responsibly make them pay and tax them higher to be able to give funding to support Canadian creators, news, all of these things. It's that in the way that they're being proposed, both through the Broadcasting Act and through support for news and a lot of these other pieces that are being put out there, it's going to fundamentally tie all of our public interest uh, cultural industries to, to the, the ongoing yeah. growth and success of the platforms that we're so mad at. And so when you look at things like online harms, if you look at things like content moderation and what they should or shouldn't be doing, a lot of the underlying issues are actually that these platforms are too big. Uh, that's the criticism. They have too much power. They have too much control. And yet what we are trying to do is say, okay, but we're actually going to make you the center of everything we think is important, which definitively makes them too big to fail. And I think that's where there's a, a tactical error in how they're going about this, not necessarily an error in 
the intention, which is to support Canadian artists and creators. And I think that's where the bill has drawn a lot of heat, uh, particularly in the past two weeks, is that it has not come in laser focused on even money, right? Like it's it's sort of sort of mixing some of those pieces around to say, well, as we discussed over the past two weeks, some of the criticisms of the bill, what you'd hear thrown in are those other criticisms of platforms as a way to justify the bill's expansion to regulate the platform. So hearing different parties, uh, you know, across the political spectrum talking about, well, what about hateful content? You know, what about that? Shouldn't we be regulating them? Well, if you want to regulate speech on the internet, let's talk about internet policy. But right now you're talking about an entire act that was designed to support artists, creators, and Canadian cultural industries, which is very different from individual free expression rights and how they turn up on the internet. So I think that's where it's kind of grown and spiraled and uh, snowballed to pull in a whole bunch of other issues that maybe weren't on the agenda in the beginning, but have really made it uh, a bit more complicated to get this bill through than I think was first intended. Let me let me just pick up on your piggy bank comment uh, for a minute, and then I'll let I'll let Lorian. Um, it it just strikes me that in sort of classical, uh, you know, when economists talk about policy, they generally don't like. Um, when funds from a particular source are earmarked towards a particular cause. For instance, this came up in the cannabis bill conversation where people are like, why don't you take all the tax money from cannabis and put it towards, you know, cannabis harm prevention? And the idea there is that, well, generally you're ending up either overfunding that um, area of public policy or you're underfunding it. Um, and it creates sort of, it also creates the impression that it's almost going to be overfunded no matter what, because people think that tons and tons of money is coming in from cannabis taxation. Um, and so broadly as public policy, people generally try to avoid um, those connections. Uh, but it strikes me that the, the broadcast system is basically one of few sort of federal mechanisms I can think of that are still set up in that way, where funds basically, instead of taxing the broadcasters, and taking that money into general revenues and then deciding they're still doing sort of a percentage of broadcast uh, money. And they're now proposing to do that with the web giants, um, which is sort of a backwards model from the way sort of modern public policy views these things. Yeah, and I, I think when you talk to those writing the bills and, and why they're trying to get them through, a lot of it is fear of future governments and how those funds will be shifted around and really feeling like Canadian cultural industries aren't the priority of every party. And I totally appreciate that. they are that. the priority of every party. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate where they're coming from, but if you look at how this bill has gone, I would say that's probably not true, right? Like you're seeing every party come to the defense of these industries and, and interest groups quite strongly. And I think while well-intended, um, it's really also a way to just demonstrate to those key stakeholders, we've got your back. Like, for the long term, this is what we're doing for you, as opposed to saying, here's how we're going after big tech. And I think it's trying to do a, too many things at once, to be honest. And I think it's trying to rein in big tech without tackling the causes and symptoms of big tech. I think it's it just it sounds nice, but that's not going to be the outcome of what comes of this. I think that it's looking at how do we get funding into Canadian content, which is great, but is far of reaching. And then it's how do we promote Canadian artists and again like the mechanisms they put into place are overreaching and so you know it's it's really too bad to watch something that you know the intentions and consequences just seem so far apart on this from where we started 
Yeah, and I just wanted to, I think Etienne sort of made half my point, which is I think <laughs> if we zoom out a little bit and talk about, like, precisely the structure of this, right, is, like, you kind of have to look at it from a historical and sort of political economic perspective, which is that, like, there was sort of a deal, right, like, in sort of the mid-century when all the our broadcasting uh, companies and, and telecoms sort of came online, which was, okay, there are going to be, like, you know, two, three, four of you, uh, if you're lucky, uh, and, you know, you have all these wires, you're going to basically have all of the, the pipes that carry all of our content to people's homes, and that's how they're going to get, you know, sort of audiovisual entertainment and, you know, education, information, whatever. Um, so the deal is you're going to pony up this amount of money for culture and broadcasting, and you're also going to sort of adhere to this rough kind of price band, and you're going to be guaranteed kind of like this range of profits, and it's sort of just a whole like bargain to and, and this this is the exact same bargain that that Laura and your your other uh, your other life as, as someone who is a you know critic of, of the kind of the way we have the telecom system in general set up like this is sort of taking that exact same sort of general system of oligopolistic semi-regulated markets with a basically guaranteed sort of profit and guaranteed sources of kind of side pot funding as it were um, and applying that to social media in a way that I think, like, we are, we're just in a very different kind of political economic mode of, like, who we're trying to regulate with this. Like, it's, you know, Silicon Valley companies are just not the, the Bells and Rogerses of the world. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> I will try and stay out of the telecom realm for the sake of this uh, particular conversation. I mean, I think the thing that is so frustrating and, and our criticism, criticisms of the bill when it was first introduced was that, you know, when I say that it's taking a broadcast model and applying it to the internet, it's believing that there's a 24 hour cycle and that's the amount of hours of programming you have to fill and that there's a set number of channels yeah. that can travel over the airwaves. And there's an infinite amount of content on the internet. And there's this, you know, artificial limit that they're trying to place on how much Canadian content can fit. And I think so much of the tactics in trying to support Canadian artists and Canadian creators online are how do we make it look exactly like how they've thrived previously, as opposed to why mm -hmm. are people switching to the internet to watch their content? What is it that they like about it? How can we make sure that our artists and creators are set up to do that too? and to do it just as well as everyone else, which I would argue they are very well positioned to do. We have incredible talent in Canada. But it doesn't always look online the exact same way that it might have historically. And until we update our understandings of what does cultural content look like in the digital age, including the definition of what is Canadian content or what is a Canadian creator in social media and in kind of that uh, influencer realm of things, then they're not included. And I think it's really shoehorning the internet into a really narrow understanding of content. And instead of actually updating the way we support our creators to say like, how do you create digital first content? How do you, why doesn't Netflix, why Netflix's next competitor come from Canada? You know, that could have started here. We have a ton of content coming out of Canada. We have a ton of rights and licenses to content. None of our platforms or our ISPs or media companies came up with that. But as soon as Netflix showed up, we started to see Show Me, we saw Crave popping up. 
And that helped force the innovation of our own companies as well. And people like it. People subscribe to Crave. They don't just subscribe to Netflix. There are actual people in Canada. I have a uh, Crave it. subscription, and I can tell you the app is terrible, and I hate using it. Um, but but you like the I'm content. I'm forced to because some content I like is only on Crave. But you like the content, right? And so, how do we support our and, and listen? I'm you know one of Bell's biggest critics, but Crave has value. And how do we make sure that there are platforms in Canada that are valued? that are, okay, I'll update the user interface. It's a little bit easier for you to actually navigate maybe, uh, but, but where are the rest of them, right? And how are we making sure that content's available and promoted? And I think that's where the only mechanism that is being supported in the Broadcasting Act is, well, let's just do what we've already done, but on the places people are. Uh, there's no talk about how do we build a new, a new thing. Like, heaven forbid we actually come up with a new platform for Canadian content because the belief is people don't want to watch it unless they're forced to. And I think that that sentence, that belief, like people will only watch Canadian content if they're forced to, whether they will say it aloud or not, is a driving belief behind so much of the way that they're tackling this Canadian content is we have to force people to watch it. People like seeing themselves represented in content and in media. Like we know that. If we tell Canadian stories really well, people will watch it. We don't need to force people. And I think, you know, from, from my perspective, I am the executive director at Open Media. I am one person. Where my perspectives come from, they're shaped from our community. You know, we have over 300,000 people in our community that speak up on the issues that matter to them. They don't all have the same belief. They don't all have the same perspective. They care about different issues. But unilaterally being told we're going to make the internet look like cable TV, there's a pretty unanimous response on that one, which is there's a reason we're on the internet and not on cable TV. And I am not the same as CTV or CBC, and I don't want you to regulate me the same way. And I don't want my timelines, my news feeds, my homepages to look the same way that my TV guide looks like when I turn on my cable subscription, because there's a reason that I left that. And so it, it's I can't speak for everyone all the time but we do have a pretty deep uh pretty deep lineup of of people who are willing to stand up and say they're concerned about this and that's where i think so much of this pushback has come from it's you know it's not me as a person i sure i have thoughts on this but this is legislation that's supposed to represent canadian voices and stories and a lot of people obviously feel that's not working for them so i think that's where the bill needs to kind of pause and rethink what the actual objective is versus kind of how it's morphed over time. So what I'd say is let's, I, I, I think that's a great conversation on sort of the, the high level principle of the bill and the directionality. <laughs> um, but it would not be this podcast if we didn't go one level crunchier and talk about sort of the process and how we got to sort of where we are today, um, which is where C10 has come from. Uh, I should know this, but I, I uh, regretfully do not. Were you a witness um, before the committee uh, on no. C10? We asked to appear, but were not invited to appear before the committee. Uh-huh. Yeah, that that always sucks. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, we can't, can jump in really we can't quick, beat everything, I, I think... but it would have been nice. <laughs> uh, I, I think for a lot of folks who, who have just been following this the last two weeks, the last 20 odd minutes would would sound not very much like the conversation they've heard uh because the right because the conversation over the last two weeks is centered around an amendment uh that was proposed by the government to remove a section of the bill that 
uh, excluded uh, YouTube and so other social media platforms from the category of broadcasters under the, the definition of the Broadcasting Act, um, while maintaining an exception for content uploaded by users. So this has kind of led to a lot of, of crosstalk about, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau will be regulating your free speech on the internet. And I think like, I am not being cavalier about this. I, I, I'm genuinely worried about the speech implications. We'll talk about that. But um, there's also kind of this other exemption that they are sort of hiding behind is like, oh, no, see, it'll be fine. And I just want to like, as we're sort of narrowing into what's what's controversial and the sort of like legislative crunch let, let's talk about like so what's the deal with the, those amendments and what's going on with that so uh so the bill is a committee uh, they had uh, some people appear before the committee primarily people who agreed with the bill uh there were a number of critics who were not uh, invited to appear and i wouldn't normally highlight that but i think that in this case the representation at committee was a little bit skewed uh, from maybe what the broader perspectives are. Um, and yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, no, I, I think that's 100% fair. I, the part, so the bill up until, you know, two weeks ago, um, it passed on what's called division through the House of Commons, so there wasn't a standing vote. Um, it basically seemed like all the parties were on board with it um, until all of a sudden, I think the Conservative Party broke from the pack after reading uh, Michael Geist's blog or something along those lines, um, <laughs> as well as the deletion of this amendment, which wasn't one that they even called for a vote on. Um, and they, in fact, had CPC 5, um, which did very comparable things. Um, but they just, I mean, ultimately the officials deemed it easier if they just deleted a clause from the bill rather than um, an opposition amendment. So like yes, it has been really funny to watch the conservatives like really be incredibly aggrieved about this about do after doing literally not even calling for a vote to have it uh, not pass. <laughs> but the, the reason I raise that though, and it deserves I, a slight poke. I, I think I think it's important that the bill has you know or that the controversy around the bill has developed how it has because just to zoom out at the the macro level generally heritage committees are staffed by um quebec mps um the the quebec uh minister uh or sorry the minister of heritage under this liberal government have been exclusively minister, uh, ministers from montreal um it is very much the quebec cultural industries have a very firm grasp on heritage cutting across all the political parties and so when you have a bill that is very much uh, crafted around the interests of that particular sector, um, who all of those MPs who are supportive of, who were supportive of the bill, um, are going to call as witnesses, are going to be reflective of their biases. And so it, until you have opposition, which is basically now, you're going to see a class of witnesses that basically represent the interests of all the MPs on one side. It's sort of, you know, there's only a few points in the Canadian political context where all the parties align on one issue, maybe like supply management being another example of this. Um, but it was basically like a supply management bill where they only called dairy farmers um, to testify in front of them, right? And so it was very much a, uh, a, a captured committee to an extent. So two weeks ago from today, I'm uh, not sure exactly when this will make it to air, but two weeks ago from today was when I think things totally took a turn. And uh, the amendment that was introduced by the Liberals was to remove Section 4.1 of the bill, 
which exempted user-generated content. Um, and I think the thing that kept it muddled for a few days was an argument and belief that section 2.1, which excludes individuals, was that it was redundant. Uh, I mean, it's been a huge debate for the past two weeks. I think only recently have we even got the government to agree that they're not the same thing, uh, but they are different. And so I think the important distinction is that right now there's an exclusion for individuals, which means that I as a person am not subject to the Broadcasting Act. I as a person am not required to regulate, or pardon me, to register as a broadcaster. You know, I'm not going to be fined if content is in violation of the CRTC regulations. I which, am Which not would liable. obviously be insane. <laughs> like... Yes, but it's in there. So you're yeah, like, great, it, 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 this is not applicable to individuals. <laughs> I think what 4.1 did was it excluded my content. So it's not yeah. me as a person, it's my YouTube video. It's my Instagram reel. That content was exempt. And so what they did was say, well, no, you personally are not included in the bill, but all of your content is. And it took a really long time to get them to actually explain why they were doing it. Uh, but I think what we really saw flip was uh, <laughs> recognizing that now all we've done is deputize all of the regulations, all of the powers, all of the policing of content to the platforms. So when the amendment first went through and when that clause was removed, people did freak out, understandably. I mean, Michael Geist very rightfully highlighted exactly what that did. We had, uh, I think we launched an action the following week to get our community to email their MPs. And within 48 hours, I think we had 15,000 emails sent to MPs that were concerned about the bill. Uh, that's a lot of emails for people to understand something like the Broadcasting Act and follow it, right? <laughs> like, I don't think people are following it that closely, but when they start to hear that their own content is going to be regulated by the CRTC, and I would say our community does know the CRTC pretty well, it raises a lot of concerns. And what, I mean, there's the public narrative, there's the PR narrative, there's all the rhetoric around it. There was the difficulty getting communications from the minister's office about why they did it or to even admit that something had been done. But I think ultimately the intention, as we've seen over the past two weeks with more amendments introduced, is they do want to include user-generated content. They want to make the platforms responsible for regulating the content that is on the internet. They want to include YouTube videos as a part of that. And I think YouTube is actually the target that they had with removing that clause very specifically. Mm -hmm. And most specifically, music that is uploaded to YouTube. Because if people can watch music for free, watch music is a weird sentence, but that's the nature of what they're getting at there. <laughs> I watch people music are, all day. <laughs> if people, are, I mean, I feel very like much music retro right now, but you know, if people are watching music on YouTube for free, I guess they're not paying Spotify who would be pulled into the broadcasting regulations and forced to pay into CanCon the way that YouTube would be exempt from. And so the intention was to bring in the revenues from YouTube and to ensure the promotion of Canadian artists on YouTube in a way that someone like Spotify would then have to comply with. The trick is, that's not at all what they did. That's not at all what the amendments did. What it said is, all CRTC regulation now applies to user-generated content as well. And where people freaked out was that includes things like broadcast standards. And user-generated content, the stuff that you or I put on the internet, including this podcast, is not held to the same standards as something that is going over the airwaves on public radio. Uh, or it's not the same mm -hmm. as a television program. It's not subject to those same standards, but this would mean that it would be. And so that's where people started to really freak out. Uh, and I think there's been a lot of pushback from all parties for different reasons to argue that that 
is or is not the case. And I think even for the Conservatives, it took them a little while to believe that was the case. Uh, and now they're, I think, the biggest champions of that argument. But <laughs> How the light switch could flip. You know, when the light switch flipped, they really caught it. But none of them thought that was the case. As you brightly pointed out, with their own amendments they were putting on there. But I think once they started to realize just how sweeping it was, you know, it took us a week talking to MPs to try and convince them this is what it does. And they're like, well, we think it's redundant. You're like, this is like, whatever the intentions are, this is what the <laughs> law says. This is what the law does. And like, if you just assume that's not how it will be used, you're leaving giant loopholes in there for any future CRTC decision or future order in council to dictate otherwise. And that's where I think C10 took a wrong turn uh, in the uh, popular opinion category of, of how it's moving forward. Yeah, I, I mean, it is surprising to see a broadcasting bill become a political firestorm in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you know, that's not, that wasn't on my bingo card earlier this year at all. I don't think anything was on our bingo cards that happened in <laughs> like a year ago. So yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> where, no, and I think it caught the government off guard and I think it caught a lot of MPs off guard because of how it, it insular did, like, the heritage, yeah. um, portfolio is. Um, it is often seen as, like, I, I'm saying this again and again, It's and it's not to beat up on Quebec by any means, it's just sort of the reality of how it's treated in Ottawa, is it's treated as the Quebec cultural industries portfolio. Um, and there is a very big difference in Canada between how, between the views on cultural industries in Quebec, which are much, much more insular and defensive, um, than they are in the rest of Canada, where, you know, Canada as a whole is insular and defensive of our cultural industries, but it's it's certainly a notch or two higher um, in Quebec. And so it was sort of like, it wasn't until the rest of Canada became aware of this um, that the light switch was flipped partially, depending on who the parties are listening to, um, and, you know, decide and the conservative party was the one ultimately that decided to to break away um since then we've sort of seen a conversation around the the charter uh what do they call it the uh the charter, charter statement for, the yeah. charter statement has sort of yeah. been one of the other contentious parts of it because the charter statement uh the initial charter statement that came with the bill used the deleted clause as a defense of uh non-infringing upon freedom of expression and so this is sort of the latest front of the, the committee war, as I understand, is whether or not the, the charter statement will come before or after clause by clause review. Is that right? Yes. So the charter statement, I think, has become the uh, newest, biggest talking point at committee. Uh, and I think the debate right now is, do you do a charter review as is or do you introduce the rest of the amendments and then do the charter statement? Uh, the problem being that right now the argument is if we don't have a charter statement, the Conservatives are saying we don't know what else needs to be fixed in the bill. And from the Liberal perspective, they're saying, well, we haven't finished tabling the amendments, so the charter statement isn't up to date. And I think both arguments are right, because you shouldn't be making amendments this gigantic and then just putting it through <laughs> halfway. So I think, you know, it's it's been interesting to see how much it's being relied on. Um, as a justification for what should or shouldn't be in the bill, uh, which I think has really become the political side of it, which is important. Like it should not violate 
the charter. You shouldn't knowingly write legislation that violates our free expression rights, of course. And I, I totally take the Liberals' point. Like, if you're not done with it, you don't know because you've only gotten halfway through the amendments. I think the problem with the charter statement being this, like, crutch for that conversation so heavily is what if the final version doesn't violate the charter but still does some pretty fundamental damage to the internet and does not end up supporting creators and doesn't do what the bill was intended to do right like there's still problems with the bill beyond just is it a rights violation like i think the bar actually has to be a little bit higher in the discourse around this bill than just can we prove (laughs) that it's illegal or unconstitutional but is it actually good and i think it's a sign that the bar has fallen really low on this bill and i think it's an important conversation i think that's what got people fired up but we need to pick the bar up higher than just technically off the ground we need to put it back up to where we think this legislation should be that's extremely a a symptom of uh like everyone having to kind of backpedal at once and needing some kind of like face-saving device to uh like with which to do so right so like after cheerfully supporting the bill through second reading without a vote and then a bunch of amendments without a vote it's kind of like then it looks a bit weird if you say oh actually we have uh, huge concerns about the structure of this bill yeah <laughs> uh and much easier to say oh we're very concerned about the backlash we're hearing tons about um like i i agree with you i i think you know a lot of a lot of issues with the bill generally and i i think I, i've stated earlier that i i think like the, the broadcasting model in general just not a great fit for what they're trying to do here um and it's worth saying, actually, that uh, in 2018, the Ethics Committee did a big sort of broad ranging study of web giants and sort of, you know, harmful effects, broadly speaking, when it comes to uh, privacy, when it comes to um, comp- uh, anti-competitive sort of behavior and effects on the market. Um, and there, you know, as committees do, they thought about what would be a good thing to do about this. And there was discussion of the Broadcasting Act for about 15 seconds and everyone realized like, ah, that's not really going to work for this. And then they moved on and made another set of recommendations because they were a committee that had looked hard at internet issues for like a year and, you know, had internalized enough of the logic of this problem that it, it just did not look like an appealing solution. But those but are different. Yeah, they, those are different. That's the thing. Problems, yeah. right? a, those are not very, the yes. ethics committee was not looking at how the cultural industries in Canada were, were struggling. No, but that's, that's precisely, I think to your point of like, which committee stuff lands in front of, uh, really matters for how it's going to be looked at. Uh, because yes, I, I think if this bill for, you know, whatever reason had gone to that committee and, you know, at, at it's, it just would have been a very different ride and they would have listened to very different stakeholders. And I, I think uh, there would have been more discussion, but to, to, to go back to what Laura said about, uh, you know, the, the bar being so low, I, I think we are now in a position where the bar can be raised, right? Luckily. Yeah. Uh, because we've gone from, a, we've at least sort of stopped, you know, hurtling towards the finish line at top speed with, with everyone hitting the gas. <laughs> uh, and just like, let's get this past. So now luckily I think, there people will say well hey what about this you know um but yeah it's this is a weird one and i think this is like the first time just talking to friends on the hill i've seen like a real gap of like you know we we said earlier that i think just people were taken by surprise like i think that's to put it mildly like people literally like just didn't like either thought the concern was totally overblown and just like couldn't see it 
or just like literally like category error like i don't understand what the problem is here um and it's like i it was funny to see like the, i can't remember it's pierre Scudel, who i think is on the bltr review uh wrote a piece with someone else who whose name i shamefully can't recall now unfortunately uh in the devoir the other day that was basically like oh no bill's fine and it was sort of parroting the exact same point that i think has been addressed multiple times that like no but like even if you are not answerable to the CRTC, your consent still is, and that's a freedom of expression risk. And it just cheerfully ignored it and moved on. And it was just like, I am shocked that ostensibly intelligent people on either side of this issue just cannot agree on like what the bill does or could do. I mean, so I, I believe that piece was written uh, with Monique Simard, another member of the BTLR panel. Yes, thank you. Um, and they actually put out a statement today as well, which Janet Yale, who led the committee, also tweeted out um, <laughs> about why it doesn't do what people are saying it does. And quite frankly, as people who have read the bill and who are talking with legal experts, it feels like gaslighting to be told that you're talking about a problem <laughs> that isn't there. And you're like, am I the only person that can see this? Like, I can't be. And you're like, other people see it too. And that's that's the part that is so deeply frustrating is you're like, you're telling me that something isn't there, but I can see it. And I think, you know, when it comes to the CRTC having regulation of speech, but the amendments that have been introduced so far by the liberals are to not remove the CRTC ability to regulate user-generated content. It's to continue to chip away at what the parameters are for what they can do, which does two mm -hmm. things. It confirms you do very much intend to regulate in some way user-generated content. So everything you told me up to this point was a lie when you kept telling me, no, that's not in there. Uh, but it also says that, you know, there's a lot of faith that this regulator is just going to figure it out. Like the way Bill C-10 is designed doesn't tell you what it's going to do. It tells you what the CRTC might do. And when you hear them talk about how they're going to put together the online harms legislation, it's very similar. It's like, well, there will be a new regulator. They will be in charge of making sure the platforms get it right. And you're like, well, what does that look like? How does that work? Like, and if you look at the website blocking pieces, who's going to decide what websites need to be blocked? Like, who are all of these deputized bodies that are in charge of making these decisions that are being given incredible powers over what the internet looks like, which as we are all doing this podcast from our homes is the main mechanism we have to literally speak to each other, you know, and just with this real message of trust us. And I think that's what's gone so wrong is there's no specificity. There's no clarity of what it means or how it will be interpreted. It's, well, they won't do that. Don't worry about it. And you can't dismiss my fears. My fears are real because they're yeah. in the bill. You have to actually assuage them by fixing things or clarifying it or removing them. And I think that's been where so much of this bill to date has been about values or rhetoric. Like, do you care about creators? Do you think that Canadian cultural content matters? And if you don't, you're, you know, you're a bad Canadian because you don't think that those stories matter. But it really dismisses people who don't feel heard in that system. And then it can uh, somehow assumes that it's going to apply to everyone. And if you have a problem with it, you obviously just, you know, aren't aligned with values as opposed to with the law or with, you know, the extreme powers that are being put forth here, not just the values of artists, creators and Canadian stories. Yeah. So the, the dynamic that you're describing is one that's not unfamiliar to me. It's the one where the government, like... The minister introduces a bill, and then the bill gets backlash among um, a group of experts, 
or lawyers or legal scholars or whoever the stakeholder community is. And basically the dynamic that happens in my experience is they, the minister in the minister's office turn to their officials, the officials who drafted the bill, and they say, fact check, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the outside experts are saying? Is it true? Is it not? And the officials that wrote the bill are inclined to defend their position. And so the minister's office <laughs> um, follows the in-house expertise and is loath to amend a bill that, you know, they've been working on for a year that's made it through cabinet with a particular um, wording, et cetera, et cetera. And it's gone all the way down. And now it's, you know, by the time a bill reaches committee, it feels like it's almost done. Um, from from the minister's office perspective, right? Because that's ultimately, in terms of time span, that's a fraction of the bill's life. Yeah. Um, and so a government can be loath to, one, um, follow the advice of outside experts when it's receiving conflicting advice. I can, like, uh, another example of <laughs> this. Do you have, a, do you have any uh, bills in mind in particular <laughs> that uh, you would say you had this experience with? Michael, so I if I was, if I was talking about that, I would make... So... <laughs> for, for your benefit, Laura, as you're, you're probably not familiar with what uh, Laura is referencing, uh, C-51 was one of the pieces of uh, legislation I worked on um, in government. Um, and Me that too, dyna- in advocacy. <laughs> and so that dynamic is entirely uh, familiar to me. But one of the other yeah. ones I was thinking is sort of the, uh, the uh, I'm trying to remember the letters that are used, but the uh, uh, blood ban. Um and the disparity in position that the government had when it was in opposition as opposed to when it suddenly has the powers of the minister's office and is not willing to change um, the criteria around the blood ban because it is listening to it is now listening to the in-house experts rather than the external experts and often when those clash the preference is to go with the internal experts because that's who minister's office sits across the table from every single day and there's also the baked-in presumption that these people know it better um, because they have more information. They're the government. They work on this all the time. Um, they wrote the bill, after all. They should be able to tell you what the impacts of the bill are going to be. And so there's often a divide that's set up between the two, and it's one where the government can be very, very cautious about amending um, stuff when there is popular outcry. I totally hear you and I agree with that in a lot of counts but I think when you look at what happened at this committee even seeing department staff testify confirming what external experts were saying that yes this would amend the bill fundamentally yes this would actually include user-generated content as a part of this and then having the minister go out and say well no it won't like you've put that on the public record and I think that's where there's there's a political agenda driving this beyond just wanting to stick with it uh, because they they are changing their own bill that they drafted in the first place. Like the language that made it past cabinet is the language that they then removed themselves, right? And so like people aren't asking for new amendments going in. And I think it's very different if, if you're criticizing the bill saying, well, you need to add these pieces in. It's the government that it's amending its own bill. And I think that's what's tripped them up is that now they have their own double speak about why they did or didn't make those changes, uh, which is... Uh, very, I think, different from external criticism of the way you've drafted the bill from the start and then wanting to justify and double down on why you did that. Uh, I think that's that's another part of where this has just gone so horribly awry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, just as, as a pure process point, because I, I do think it's important as someone who's followed many pieces of legislation, um, how much of a pain in the ass is it to follow the amendments of a bill as it goes through committee? The, oh, the biggest? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. that's, that's what I was hoping you would it's say. The worst. Um, the worst? Uh, it is as, okay, so as someone whose job is actually not to follow legislation that closely, uh, you know, I have a lot of other things on my plate and my team does as well. So we are not as uh, well versed in the committee processes and proceedings as either of you two might be. Um, to watch things read aloud and somehow reference them to a document that is already not up to date is very difficult. And not um, public. And not public. And so, like, the amendments are not public. So you're just hoping you're catching the things as they come out and trusting other people as they comment on it. But the additional challenges is that, in this case, it is an amendment act. So you're introducing amendments yeah. to a bill that is filled with amendments to an old bill, <laughs> which makes it just, like, layers and layers of complexity of which version you're referencing and which clause. And Yeah, it's... It's the worst process. I really think that it, it is, is unfortunately still common. Like I would say most bills. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> my my internet in in true Canadian fashion is extremely bad today. Uh, but I was I was just saying like often like I I would say most bills you're basically having to play archaeologist of like trying to figure out okay like this amends like six different bills which part is this what does that actually do <laughs> and uh it is just the biggest nightmare going and then when you get into senate amendments you have even more fun but particularly from the stakeholder perspective though it is you do not have unless you have a good relationship with an mp's office who you're either able to ask for and get the list of amendments which sometimes they're cagey about they are just lpc amendment five uh and they read like a partial blurb of the text and then you yep. have no idea what the hell it's doing. And they're like, that passes, no vote. Well, and, and if on. you missed it, <laughs> oh, okay. you get to scroll back through video footage of a Zoom meeting. So <laughs> like it's, it, I think, added even more complexity right now when you're hoping the screen's on the right person who's talking at the right time. And yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty hair pulling experience to try and actually sit through and figure out what's happening, uh, which, you know, I think, works both ways it it actually you know it means you have to pay attention which is good and you're really focusing quite closely on the bill and i think on the flip side it makes it really easy for people to be dismissed as like oh you don't know what's happening and you're like do i know what's happening and you're like no i'm pretty sure but but you always have to second guess yourself and then you go back and you know other people are sharing it and you're watching it and you're like no that's what this does and you have to kind of triple check your work but it, it makes it a lot easier to dismiss critics for not understanding the process and to be fair like this committee has gotten particularly in the weeds like they weren't even sure who was voting on what about what amendment yesterday <laughs> in terms of did they vote to pause or or move the motion or do it now or later like they were confused themselves and i think that's the truest sign that if you're following along from home you're like doomed set up to fail from the start when the people who are in the meeting with all the documents they're struggling to keep up to because yeah we're saying that mps do not come into these jobs with like any like necessarily like some of them who are you know many of them are lawyers and will sort of like have a bit of a leg up on this but like it, often you're coming into this and it's the first time you're dealing with legislation period uh and then having to deal with like compli complicated amendments processes and like the committee process itself is fairly fraught and fairly procedure laden like uh 
there, there's definitely a learning curve there and like i think mps and staff like just a lot of the time are not super well equipped to deal with like very complex legislative ta- tasks which you think like but laurent that's the point of parliament yes it is but uh i think you could argue that parliament is actually not very good at its core job I mean, watching the government transition to Zoom meetings over the past year as someone who does a ton of work on advocating for better internet connectivity was like a true moment of like, you feel me, <laughs> like you truly understand and see what I've been talking about all this time. And watching ministers get kicked from calls because their connection's too poor was like cathartic in some way. Being like, finally, I know they know what I'm talking about. And then you take it to this level around the complexity of, of bills and it's, it's useful when they struggle with that a little bit. Like when the new MPs are actually the best in some ways I find because they're like, this is hard, right? And you're like, no, this is super hard. It's not easy for people to keep up. And I think, you know, if there's one thing that government, and this is not about this particular liberal government, it's like the Canadian government, you know, as someone, someone, as, as a government that is committed to open government and transparency and all of the like OGP principles that we've signed on to, the basic processes of the building blocks of our laws are so opaque <laughs> for the average person to understand. Like trying to gain access. Apparently I was quoted at committee last night. I missed it. I don't know, but apparently my tweets were read into the record or something. And I was like, how do I find that to know if they said, did I get misrepresented? Was it good? I, I don't know. I guess I have to go back and watch two hours of video to find you, you out. Wait for, you- you message the clerk and you get the blues is is honestly the best. <laughs> so you get the unofficial yeah, blues, they come the 24 blues. to 48 hours later, and that's like the best asset that anyone can have. But you have to know that you can message the committee clerk. Exactly. And but what does that look like? Because they're not public for a regular person. They're not person. public by default. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Because like, they're not final, the they're draft documents. So they only no, get published weeks chambers. later as public documents. Answered in the... The actual, like, floor debates do get published in blues format, uh, but committee debates don't, for whatever reason. No, committee, that's not true. Committee debates get published as blues. They're published on the website as evidence, but it takes about a week or two. Maybe but we're saying the same thing. how do you find that as a regular person? No, that's person. what I'm saying. Like, that's yes. the trick, right? Like, yeah, 100%. It, is, it yeah. is hard enough for a regular person to figure out. It just takes some, like clever use of a search engine to find it like what was said in the house of commons or debate or where does a bill stand and so for example when we launched our campaign about bill c10 saying like hey there's some stuff you need to pay attention to tell your mps they need to take notice we had a whole bunch of people coming back to us saying that's not what the bill says 4.1 is still in the bill because the latest version is first reading which is tabled and so you like trying to explain to people well yes they actually won't publish a new version of the bill means that for people who really care about this stuff, unless you like are a Hill staffer or friends with one, it's just not welcoming. And I think <laughs> like that is part of what we do at Open Media. That's part of our job is to try and make that easier for people to participate in public processes. You know, the CRTC is a semi-judicial body. It's not really the kind of place where people just show up and take the mic. Uh, but we want to make sure that people have their voices heard because the decisions around internet service providers dramatically impact the lived experience of people across the country. They should be able to weigh in. So how do we make that easier? It's the same thing with bills that relate to the Broadcasting Act, the Telecom Act, anything that has to do with Copyright Act. And we've testified on all of these different issues, but it's really hard to explain to someone how they could do that. And so, you know, we try and 
provide that mechanism for people to have a platform to make it easier for them to get their voice into committee or to reach their MP or to know what a bill means or how it might impact them. But it shouldn't require us to do that all the time. Like it should be easier for a person who's just smart and thoughtful and interested to be able to know what their government's doing at any given day. And like, you know, suggesting an overhaul of the government website and processes is probably the most time consuming, expensive bureaucratic process I could possibly suggest at this point. <laughs> uh, but for what it's worth, I think that's really hard for people to, to follow along and has, has added to the confusion in this section in particular for something that all of a sudden at the last minute says, wait a minute, it does apply to you. And people freak and they can't find it and they don't have any information and they're getting conflicting messages from all the different elected officials because they're in a different game. They're in their own PR battle between you know, talking points and people can't just find their way through it to make their own judgment very easily. And I think that's the biggest gaps that we have right now in that process. I 100% agree as someone who's done this for a living. Um, and all I can say is just wait till it gets to the Senate because then it gets much, much harder to follow. Um, I still have no idea really how bills um, get prioritized through the Senate. Um, like I understand the process theoretically, but in trying to follow it is just impossible um, until it gets to committee. Um, and then it goes into a black box again until it comes out at Royal Ascent. It is just impossible to follow. <laughs> well, if you uh, figure out the how to Senate 101 guide for the average person in Canada, <laughs> the, the, and I'm the happy answer to is there's the no word. way to do it. Bills will come up for debate in the Senate for like five minutes and then be removed. You literally just have to check the transcripts every day after the fact to find out if something happened. And there's no way to follow it live. It's just absolutely impossible. It's ridiculous. All right, we'll start with the House, then we'll reform the Senate <laughs> transparency on processes and put a how-to guide for that one together. There's a whole bunch of work Reform here. the scroll. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even have like a, yeah, they don't even have like a reliable order paper. Like it's very, uh, no. yeah, just a nightmare. Archaic. So much more well, fun I to come that... on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think that'll probably do it for uh, for our discussion of, of C10. Laura, thank you so much for, for joining us for this. Um, I guess where can, can folks follow along with what Open Media does? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me as your first digital R remote, guest. remote podcast. Um, so for anyone who's interested, uh, it's openmedia.org, uh, where we have all of our different campaigns and all of our different issues from C10 to... How do we bring our cell phone bills down and why do we need MVNOs to what should we do about website blocking? Uh, a lot of different proposals on the table. So uh, we're, on, we're on the socials, but I think the website will give you a, the access point you need to find us everywhere you're interested. Perfect. The, uh, the one thing I would actually, I would leave us with is a prediction on the future of C10 because I, I find that's worth, uh, worth discussing. Please tell me you pulled out a magic eight ball to do this. Uh, no, but I looked at the, the parliamentary calendar and the, uh, the, a list of the other bills that are on the agenda. And as it stands today, what are we, May 7th? There are one, two, yep. three and a half weeks minimum of House, uh, House parliamentary time, really. Um, which is not enough, I, I really don't think, for this bill to pass the House and the Senate with the other bills that are on the agenda, including the Budget Implementation Act, a, a very, uh, perhaps the most important bill, as well as environmental legislation, uh, the privacy legislation seemingly is going nowhere. 
Um, but there's a number of other bills that I think are now likely a greater priority for this government than this bill. And I think the controversy of it has likely set it back in the priority list um, sufficiently so that three weeks of House time are probably, give or take, are probably not enough for it to get through. Um, so I think if I, if I were to shake my magic eight ball, it might say this bill will be re resurrected in uh, maybe September, October under a new session of parliament, depending on whether or not we have an election. And then the fight will have to be held all over again um, with the bill under a different number is, is sort of how I would uh, project this all playing out. I'm happy to come back and uh, <laughs> check in on your predictions and renumber and name the bill in future, should that be the case. Yes, we might have to have a conversation on bill C3 or C5 <laughs> or whatever it becomes at that point. That'll, that'll help everyone's comprehension of what's going on, for sure. Laura, any last yeah, words? No, uh, that, that's it for me. Uh, once again, thanks, Laura. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, until next time, everyone. Bye-bye.